It's a movie perhaps made most famous by Paul Rudd, who had absolutely nothing to do with the movie in the first place. This episode has absolutely zero tomatoes given, and we're joined today by Greg from Movie Date Night and Moral Combat to look at the fun that is Mac and Me and prove to you that it isn't that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to It Isn't That Bad, the podcast that looks at A grades in B movies. Hope you're doing well. You're going to love this one because we got a guest this time. Introducing Greg from Movie Date Night and Mortal Kombat. Greg, welcome to the show. How you doing? I am fantastic. I get to talk about one of my favorite movies. I was going to say, so we're going to get to that movie in a second here. But first, let's tell us about you. Uh, uh, what podcasts are you on? What are those podcasts about? And introduce yourself. And then you need to spill the beans on why Mac and Me is such a good movie to you. Oh, happily. Uh, so I am Greg. Uh, I am from Movie Date Night with my wife, Lauren, where we share movies with each other back and forth. The other one has never seen before. Um, we also have a podcast called Friday is Game Nights, where we talk about board games, how to have a game night yourself, and escape rooms. And then also we are a co-host on another one called Moral Combat, where we have pop culture tournaments, where we argue about things like what's the cutest baby animal, what's the best video game character, what's the most overrated 80s film. And then we go through a tournament style, and then the audience votes to decide the ultimate winner. And those can be found at Movie Date Night at Game Friday and at Moral Combat Pod, respectively. You are literally like, you know, the the podcast creation factory, you guys, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. So why Mac and Me? Why Mac and Me? Because I love this film ever since I was a kid. This is the genesis of my loving, quote, bad movies. But of course, we're here to talk about how it's such a great film. But if you're talking about I think everyone has an origin story for why they like so bad it's good films. And this is mine. I remember my grandmother had a bunch of VHSs on this like kind of hanging rack on her closet door. And she was the one who would babysit me when I was a little kid, like kind of too young to go to kindergarten, but you know, um, and we had pop on VHSs all the time. So it was either this or Fern Gully day after day. So um, I think she liked this one more than the animated one about saving the rainforest. So this is the one I saw the most as a kid. So basically, you know, animated Avatar before Avatar was even a thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as you know, on this show, mm -hmm. our, our way to kind of introduce the movie is to take the synopsis and straight up trailerize it. So in this case, Greg, I'm going to hand the reins over to you. Trailerize it. A mysterious alien creature, or Mac, escapes from nefarious NASA agents and is befriended by a wheelchair-using boy named Eric. Together, Eric and Mac try to find Mac's family from whom he has been separated. Nice. Now, let's get into a little bit of the, the movie background here. So it's released in 1988, and we mentioned at the beginning of the show that Paul Rudd may be the, the person yes. almost single-handedly you know, um, credited for making this still a pop culture reference today. Um, tell us about the, the Paul Rudd gag. So Paul Rudd uh, did have a brief stint on Friends near the end of the series, if I remember correctly. And it started back then, but he still does it even today, where whenever he goes on a late night show talk circuit, like to, you know, Jay Leno, Jimmy Fallon, whoever it was at the time, he always, you know, they usually do, a, oh, do you want to see a clip of the most recent project I'm working on? So they say, yeah, let's go to the clip. And he always shows the clip of Eric in his wheelchair, just tearing down this steep, steep hill and then eventually falling off the hill at the obvious special effect fail that is the dummy of this lifeless, you know, crash dummy falling out of the chair just as it hits the water after about a 40 foot drop. <laughs> I, if, if you haven't seen, like, there are compilation clips of mm -hmm. Paul Rudd on Conan O'Brien. So it's, 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 it's a moment. It's a moment yeah. I, of which I don't think Paul Rudd has actually aged at all from the beginning of the gag to. Oh, no, so he's made a deal with the devil for certain for eternal youth. That's, that's, that's already been proven. Yeah. I, I think I saw someone pointing out uh, on, on Twitter a couple of days ago that forget all these like makeup TikTok stars. Mm -hmm. I want Paul Rudd's skincare routine. 
Yeah. But let's talk about, you know, who's actually in this movie. Um, some of the stars that people may be familiar with, uh, the main one is the mom, Christine Ebersol. Mm-hmm. Uh, people might remember her from Richie Rich. And she yeah. was also more recently in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. But her first movies, like back to back, were like Tootsie and then Amadeus. So to, to be in like two of these, you know, big name movies and then go to Mac and me. But I mean, like there's a lot of like, small little roles in here where you're just like, oh, I didn't even realize that they were in there. Um, the one that's kind of stuck out to me mm-hmm. was Danny Cooksey. So, yeah, yeah the, the the redhead kid who's the best friend of Eddie Furlong in Terminator 2, but he's also, you know, you got to raise your horns on this one, the lead singer of the band Bad for Good. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, anyone who doesn't know Bad for Good, uh, the band was basically built around this like Steve Vai prodigy guitar player. And yeah, Danny Cooksey is the singer. Like they had like one album. I don't think they, they, they lasted longer than maybe a couple of months, but it was kind of cool. It was kind of cool. Um, but there was also, I, I, I'd love that you mentioned Fern Gully because mm-hmm. Jonathan Ward is an actor in this film who was actually in Fern Gully. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's Dimbling Mills. But the key, th- the funny thing I found about him was that he's the brother of Elizabeth Ward. Um, people might remember her from a Jack Palance horror film called Alone in the Dark, but she was actually the original Carol Seaver in the pilot of Growing Pains. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. So when Growing Pains, like what first came out, there was a pilot. You know, they, they obviously tested uh, some different actors. So before we had our, our, our Carol Seaver, right? It, it was Elizabeth Ward, sister of Jonathan Ward from this movie. Um, but the movie didn't get received all that well because it's got it's got some Razzie love attached to it. Yeah, it got four of those. But to counteract every single one of those Razzie awards, it did get a Youth in Film Award nomination. I, four I, for four. It did. It, it, and it was. That, that's, I think, one of the things we're going to talk about is the kids in this film. But let's talk about the director who did actually co-win for uh, Worst Director, tied with mm-hmm. Blake Edwards of Sunset, um, which is which I find funny because, you know, taking a look through Stephen Raffles, um, who was also the screenwriter of the film, he directed Ice Pirates and the Philadelphia Experiment. And, like, I mean, Philadelphia Experiment kind of stands on its own, but I loved mm-hmm. Ice Pirates. I thought Ice Pirates was just a fun film which kind of came out around the same time as you know time bandits and whatnot so they had these almost like fantastical you know excursion type movies so he's got good cred i don't i think it was kind of like he kind of got crapped on because the movie was getting crapped on at the time for being a bit of an et knockoff well what happened uh from what i've heard is that when he was hired onto the project they already hired, had all the crew hired, and there was no script. And normally, you, the director's the, one of the first people you hire once you have a script. So they kind of put the cart before the horse in this case. And they're like, everyone's already being on the clock paid. You need to figure this out now. So not only are they like, we want to capitalize upon the ET popularity, but also he's under the gun to get this done fast because your budget is bleeding every day that you don't start shooting. So like, I don't blame him for, you know, it's kind of like, I, I love watching those cooking shows where they have like people like, you know, like the, uh, what's that nailed it where they have mm-hmm. average people trying to do a baking thing and like, okay, yeah, maybe they could have made that if you give them time, but you only gave them 30 minutes. So this is the product that, you know what? That's amazing for 30 minutes for what you just pulled <laughs> off. You should be proud of that. Thank you. Right. But I think one of the, uh, you know, the, the bigger things weighing on him is, you know, the money that was put into the movie by Coca-Cola and mm-hmm. McDonald's. Like there's, there's a lot of pressure when you have, you know, those two monstrous, you know, monstrous entities that are putting that money in and, and basically say, no, but we got to do this and we got to do this. And we got to do this. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that Ronald McDonald won the Razzie for worst new star. <laughs> he did. He did. And I remember one of the teaser trailers for the film is Ronald McDonald sitting in an actor's chair. He goes, hi, I'm Ronald McDonald. I'm going to be in my first film ever as if he's going to have a career after this film and or as if he's his own entity. And I just love that. It's as if like Pee Wee Herman said, I'm having my own movie. It's going to be a series of movies. And it's in this great. Yeah, he did have a series of movies, but <laughs> it, they were going based upon the same premise. Like, oh, a child's fictional character can be his own actor his own thing and it's like yeah but Pee Wee's not pushing hamburgers on kids but 
something good actually came out of it was the fact that part of the box office did actually go to Ronald McDonald House charities. Yes. Now, it didn't make a lot of money. You know, it, it grows no. only six million worldwide on a thirteen million dollar budget. So I don't know if you know Ron McDonald had to pay the rest off in hamburgers, but <laughs> but you know, the, some good that came out of it. Now we mentioned at the beginning of the show that you know zero tomatoes were given in the making of this film, mm-hmm. and at one point it did have a zero, a like straight zero Rotten Tomato score. So I took a look on it while I was doing my research. It's up to four percent. I did see that. I was shocked because when I spoke to you on Twitter about this and you were saying, hey, who wants to do I raised my hand with a little gif of the alien raised in his hand and say, I volunteers tribute Mac and me zero <laughs> percent. Let's swing for the fences. Let's go. I could talk about how great this film is. But yeah, I, it must have been that somebody put a review up that actually liked it. So it's starting to come around, I think. Yeah. And that's the thing, like four percent tomato meter, which is basically all the all the, the proper critics. But it's got a 38 percent audience score. Yeah. Like, so it can't be all that bad. Mm-mm. Like, it's no, um, oh, what's that John Travolta movie, that Gossy or Gotti? It's uh-huh. not Gotti, where, like, it's painful to watch and, like, it's intolerable. Like, we're constantly checking your clock, like, uh, how much longer do I have? This movie, okay, granted, it may not be, like, a cinema blockbuster, as we talked about with the budget already, but it's it has its fun moments, and it's enjoyable to get through. You know, plus it's got a decent running time of, I think, about 80 minutes or so. So it's not going to be like, you know, torture of an intolerable length by any far stretch of the imagination. And by far stretch, of course, I do mean like the puppet of Mac when he's on the electric (laughs) fence being blown out by the helicopter. Yeah, they never really defined what their abilities were. I'm like, is he is he part Mr. Fantastic? I'm not quite sure. Oh, so I've thought about this for years. Believe you me, because <laughs> this is a great movie. And I believe I have the answer for you. I believe that Mac and his family are rubber-based life forms because they were able to morph and bend their bodies freely, it seems. Uh, they're able to maintain that shape for a brief amount of time. When Mac first escapes the NASA facility, he does stretch himself out. He turns himself into almost a barrel shape while rolling towards the street, flattens against the windshield, and it's fine. They also can hold what seems to be an electric charge. So since rubber is not a conductor, the electricity would go into his body, have nowhere to go until he touched something else. So Mac is a rubber-based life form, just like the McDonald's hamburgers. So literally, he's the combination of Mr. Fantastic and Shazam. Yeah. I'm, I'm down so. with that. See? Yeah. Now, now we need a Mac and me part of like one of the superhero universes, and we're fine. And that's why their planet's dead, because they just have an all-out civil war. That's a, that's a prequel I want. <laughs> it's, it's, like the, it's like the beginning of Terminator 2, but it's Mac and me. Yeah, exactly. St- still with Danny Cooksey. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. He was in that too. He right? was the punk arcade friend. Yeah, who's like Thank in there for two minutes. So, so let's let's get to the breakdown here. This, this is where we break it down section by section. Greg, we're going to start with you. Let's take a look at uh, some of your acting positive notes of Mac and Me. Okay. Um, listen, a lot of people give a lot of slack to children actors. They say like, oh, they're always so whiny. They're always so annoying. Listen. I've been in plenty of long car rides with my siblings. The banter between Eric and his brother is exactly what it sounded like in my car. You know, um, what is the actor's name who played Eric? I have it written here. Jade uh, Calgary. He, for a first time acting gig, I think he's doing amazing. I think he's a lot better than a lot of other child actors who are quote professionals were doing around his same age. And I'm on board for it. I mean, Granted, a lot of the scenes in here are mostly him just kind of staring around going, what? What's going on? But when he's actually acting and reading his lines, it's not bad. I, I, like I said, it's not maybe the greatest of all time, but it's also not the very absolute worst. I think one of the, 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 the nice things is because he's, you know, his character's in a wheelchair. Jade Caligari actually has spina bifida. So, you know, so it's one, it's one of the situations where, you know, there's always a lot of talk of like, you know, if, if you're showing, you know, a handicapped person in in a film, why not hire a handicapped actor? Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, Mac and me was ahead of the game. Yes. You know, and, and put him in the role and you're right. He was actually enjoyable to watch, you know, you know, like you said, our child actor is always going to be, you know, as you know as good as you know you want them to be kind of thing are they going to emote well maybe not but it's also the 80s 
right? Like, yeah, it's a kids movie with kids, and I think the kids kind of really played uh, well enough in it too. Um, one of the also things that I liked about it, you mentioned like the whole sibling talking to each other in the car thing, um, but the mom. Mm-hmm. You know, really played off the fact that she's a good, caring mom who's really doing whatever she can to make sure, you know, that 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 her youngest son, who's in a wheelchair, has everything that they need. And the the family scenes, especially in the beginning of the film, before like the whole, you know, before they encounter Mac, you know, there's a lot of really good, not overstated. It's not like they 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 served up on silver pliers like you know he's got a handicap you know and made a big thing about it it was just like yeah he's got a handicap and this is what we did and it's yeah. kind of glossed over but it's kind of, i think it's better that it's glossed over well it's kind of like how people are talking about to portray um alternate uh sexuality characters nowadays you know where they don't have to be all this stereotypical like a super flamboyant gay best friend of hello kind of thing. It's why can't we have a character who just chooses a different sexuality or gender preference, but is like a normal human being, you know? So here it's, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Eric's in a wheelchair. No big deal. Let's move on with our lives. You know, like it's not, it's not necessarily an integral part part of the story. There's not any moment where like, darn, if only someone who was in a wheelchair was here, we could make this work. You know, it's it just he happens to be in a wheelchair. And I think that's a fantastic uh, choice. Yeah, because I mean, if I'm being honest, I think the reason why they may want to have chosen that is to help distance them even more from E.T. Because, Mm -hmm. listen, at the end of the day, every conversation is going to be how do we make ourselves as close to E.T. without getting our butt suit in court? That's what the conversation must have been at the end of every single meeting that they had. And I think in in my honest opinion, they were like, we got to recreate the bike scene. We got to recreate the bike scene, but if we put them on a bike, that's not going to fly. What if we take the wheels instead of having them be uh, front and back, we put them side to side. Oh, wheelchair. There you go. You know, so I kind of feel like that might've been the conversation that was had behind closed doors. But like I said, it's not a big deal. And you're right. The mom is also great because when she goes and they come to the new house, she's pointing out all the features that a young boy in a wheelchair would want to appreciate. Like, look at low counters. You can reach everything. See, uh, why we're going to keep the wide hallways here so that way you can move up and down freely. So you get a sense that the life that they are moving out of from Illinois in Chicago, maybe it was more of a cramped apartment. Maybe it was like a walk up of some kind that he had to deal with. And now he's got a nice and easy and ADA compliant home. So he can actually go in and out of the house on his own without the need of his brother or mother to help him. I think one of the other uh, nice things that that they did with the mom was that there's this trope where, Mm -hmm. you know, the kid sees something the parent doesn't and then the parent gets mad at the kid. Right. And then thinks it's, you know, everything bad is their fault. But they never really went down that way. It's just like, it's almost like she's taking it in as, well, this is their way of coping with all the changes that's going on. So I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to overreact. I'm just going to like, this is, this is their coping mechanism. They see an alien that I don't see. So I'm just going to. No, what's great is that in the scene where Mac, uh, for reasons beyond our understanding, because it's Mac and his mind is genius and glorious and beautiful. He brings the outside inside where he puts like the fake deer there, all the piles of dirt and flowers and stuff. And he essentially ruins the living room. The mother has a momentary freaking like, oh my God, what's going on? But then she turns to Eric and essentially like, are you okay? How can I help you? Because like you said, she's not mad. She's a little bit frustrated, but then she's like, how do I help fix this situation for my son? Who's clearly having some kind of a psychological uh, uh, lashing out. There's a lot of positive parental things about that character that she brought that I, I don't think maybe has gone mentioned in that. Um, mm-hmm. But I do have to ask because it, it kind of comes across to me that no one freaks out in this movie. No. Ever. You know, no. aliens walk into the grocery store. One of them's got a gun. The, their first response is uh, customer service, not yeah. security, customer service. You know, they pull up to the gas station. The girl looks over. There's aliens in the van. I'm not going to freak out. They reach out and grab a drink. Now I'm going to freak out. It's almost like how weird was California in the 80s that people didn't freak out over liver spotted aliens 
walking around naked in, you know, in Volkswagen camper vans. I think if you want to have the answer to that, you need to go watch Cheech and Chon's Up in Smoke. Because that'll be a lot of a lot of your answers right there. But yeah, like the only person I can really think of that freaks out are well, two is one the security guard in the grocery store where he like he 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 starts to do the whole like nervous security guard holding the gun at them and then immediately just gives the gun up to the alien who did not ask for it. But then the only other time I can think of is Debbie the girl next door friend where she's when the family first rolls up and Mac hops out of the car, she's like, the hell is that thing (laughs) for like one time. And then later she's on the balcony going, Oh, is that your little friend? I saw him run this way. Yeah. She immediately jumps on board. It's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm commuting with nature spirits. I'm, I'm eight. Yeah. Let's go. (laughs) One of the, one of the characters actually did, I think, you know, for lack of a better term, emote properly kind of thing is, is, mm. is, is Tina Kasparian. She's the woman that played Courtney, who was Debbie's big sister. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really get to see too much of her in the beginning of the film. Um, and then all of a sudden she and, you know, the, the big brother are dating and it's like, when did that happen? So kind of a script oversight, but she, she came across to me as, especially near the end. Like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what happens in the end, dear listeners, but because spoilers, um, but she was the one that almost seemed to be reacting the most realistically, mm-hmm. you know, towards Eric and you know, kind of what happened. Uh, that's as much as I'm going to say. But I think she actually, you know, probably deserved a bigger role because it looked like she was bringing the proper amount of emotion to the scenes. Yeah, um, I, I'm kind of reminded of the line from Men in Black that. People are panicky, a person is smart. I think I said that backwards, but you know, like if you take an alien and put him into a grocery store with a whole bunch of people, the general energy of the entire group is going to be freak out. But if you give it to a single person one at a time, like how we do with Courtney, she'll freak out for a moment, but then she'll come to her senses and be like, okay, well, they're not directly attacking me right now. So I let's test the situation, see how safe this is. Cause yeah, when she first meets Mac, She's very hesitant at first, but then she quickly realizes, oh, I don't see any fangs. I don't see any like death ray in his hand. He seems to be nice. He almost is making like kind of a weird whistling purring noise. Maybe he's okay. You know? So yeah, she actually has the most genuine, I think a real person would have in a situation like this reaction. All right. So let, let's jump to the script here for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, a lot of people were talking about, you know, if ET, you know, it's an ET knockoff basically, you know, funded by McDonald's and and, and Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you mentioned, Stephen Raffle had, like, not a lot of time to put this whole thing together. Mm-mm. So the script is... The script is uh, a bit wanting, in my opinion. Like, some of the dialogue that the family has, especially near the beginning, is kind of, you know... I'm not a script writer. I feel like I could bang that out. Like, you know, a pretty nice, like, Hey, this house is pretty nice. Okay. Let's find a new adjective other than pretty nice for this home. But, you know, as the film goes on, we do at least have some interesting scenes, like conversations between Eric and Debbie, where they're talking about what is Mac, you know, Oh, he's a little goblet or like, is he a little goblet buddy? No, he's not. You know, uh, one of my, one of the scenes I actually just watched just before we started was, um, Eric is hunting down Mac for the first time and he goes outside following the footprints and Debbie says, Oh, are you looking for your friend? He ran down the hill and goes, yeah. Did you see him? What does he look like? And she goes, isn't he your friend? He goes, Oh yeah. I was just playing with you. Like I liked that part. Cause that's how kids would be. They would, you know, try to lie, get caught in lie, then immediately try to recover. You know, so I like at least that kind of uh, intelligent script writing there of how a child would have this conversation. Because if it was an adult, they might play it a bit more smart, a bit more to the chest. But kids a bit more, you know, cards at the table, let's just talk about what I actually know and don't know. And then, oh, I didn't mean to show you that. Let me let me take that back. It, it was. It was almost like, you know, it's almost like as he was writing it, he was thinking of, you know, and, and I don't know if he has kids or not, or, you know, if, or if he does have kids, uh, were they that age at that time? But it, it did very much sound like, you know, he's heard these conversations, you know, in the mm-hmm. neighborhood or in his home at the time. Um, I do have to point out, and I, I know, I know I try not to bring up anything, you know, 
bad about it. So um, it's just very interesting. This has to have one of the most random out of context lines of dialogue that I think I heard. And it, it's just a throwaway, but it's one of those things where, you know, you know, you all of a sudden you just perk up and say, did I just hear that right? So there's a scene where the mom is in the, in the department store. I think that's where she's working. And like Macy's or something. Yeah. Or Sears. Exactly. And she's going up the escalator. Um, as, as Eric gets, gets there and starts calling for her. But, you know, they come into the conversation where she's talking to, I guess, one of her co-workers. And it's just the line the line of dialogue as they come in. It's like, how long have you been in lingerie? And if you yeah, don't, yeah. if you don't, you know, if you just come into that conversation, you have to sit there and go, I needed to hear more of that conversation. Were they talking about work or is there something that we need to know about this guy? Right. I mean, maybe he just admitted that he is a big um, Ed, Edgar J. Hoover fan. I'm 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 all for that, but we do have to point out McDonald's flash mob for the win. Yes, I thought this is McDonald's were like back in the '80s, and I was like, did I miss something? Why is my McDonald? When do they schedule this? Because it's not going to be every day, but we got to show up for when they do the flash mob bomb. Right. I mean, I I get it's the '80s. I get you know. You know, random characters breaking out in dance routines was a thing around mm-hmm. that time. But first of all, McDonald's Flash Mob, phenomenal name for a band. Yeah, right. <laughs> Second of all, to this Flash Mob, they got young Jennifer Aniston and Nikki Cox to show up. Uh, Nikki Cox's very first role, actually. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the Jennifer Aniston thing, you know, makes sense now with the Paul Rudd appearing on Friends and whatnot. But yeah, like it's it's now time to spot the friend in the McDonald's flash mob and I'm all for yeah. it. <laughs> Not that the dancing was great, but <laughs> better than I've ever pulled off, that's what I say. But I mean all in all, I mean it is an enjoyable script. Um but the set and costume design. Let's talk about the aliens. Okay, I'm here to talk about that all day. Let's go. The aliens, to me, as a kid, I didn't notice this, but as an adult who's rewatched as many times, it is weird that they are nude in the beginning. They find random pieces of cloth while they're wandering through the deserts and are trying to apparently clothe or, you know, shield themselves. And in the end, I mean, of course, at the end, once they integrate society, society is going to be like, we're more prudish than you. You need to put on clothes. But it just, it it feels like I'm being told the nude that they were in the beginning may not be appropriate. And because these aliens are definitely gendered, or at least what we would transplant as our gender and typical family structure onto them. I think we can agree there is definitely a father figure, a mother figure, what appears to me at least to be an older sister and then Mac, who I think would be arguably the baby boy. It's basically the Incredibles, but they're aliens and they come from some yes. planet near Saturn. Um, and they're all just Elastigirl. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. Although that being said, um, if we're making comic book references, anyone who complains about, you know, Naked Thing in Josh Trank's Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah. Like, like literally just watch the liver spotted aliens, you know, walk around and stick straws into the ground and drink. Um there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but it also leads to some of the cinematography and the directing. Well, um, hold on. Let's go back one second. Sorry okay. to interrupt you. I have more costume to talk about. Ooh. I cannot let you move on until we talk about the dancing teddy bear. Dancing yes. teddy bear is one of the best scenes in this movie. And what I love so much about it is they had two choices. You know, assuming that they're going to go with dancing teddy bear, either we just get a legit good looking teddy bear costume and we stuff it full of fluff so it looks like an actual teddy bear, or we do what would have happened in real life where here's a teddy bear that we rip the stuff out enough and then now we're going to put anorexic Mac into it so the skin's going to be hanging all loose and it's going to look like he is swimming in this thing. I, I'm having flashbacks now from the first Men in Black film. So almost like Matt, you know, needs to walk around going, I need sugar and water yeah. in the yeah. Edgar suit. <laughs> That's this thing fits him like an Edgar suit. Exactly. <laughs> and like, you can clearly see his weird eyes behind it that are blinking. So even if you tell all the greatest lies in history about how, oh, it's got microchips and it's my robot teddy bear. Okay. But why is it staring into my soul? <laughs> oh, 
And I do, I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I need to bring up the, um, you know, the orgy of evidence that this family is from Chicago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Like everything, Chicago Bears shirts, Chicago Cubs shirts. No love for the White Sox. No love for the Blackhawks. But I noticed that. No. Yeah. Apparently, they're not a big hockey family. Which, okay, let's be honest. NHL probably had the you know the the, the best video games. Obviously, later in the nineties. But come on. 80s Blackhawks weren't that bad. And the Cubs were, you know, closing in on, what, 80, 90 years at that point without a championship? <laughs> yep. Listen, listen, their father, who we see in one picture, which I'm assuming he is now post-mortem, um, he clearly was a big uh, Cubs fan, and he goes, boys, we're going to go to the games. We're going to go, and eventually they'll pull through. And, and it is the 80s, so dub bears. Da Bears. Yeah, da that's bears. probably what it was. Da Bears. <laughs> but but yeah. it's not like, like, I would have loved if Eric was like, you guys, where's a good hot dog place? Like, you know. Uh, but yes, the, the orgy of evidence that says this is where they are. It's like the, the, the sweaters were character development. Yeah, pretty much. It's just, oh, uh, uh, put them in something that has the, the Chicago Cubs C on it. Sure. Why not? Exactly. Um, also, and we're getting to this here. Um, as far as the cinematography goes, mm-hmm. right? That opening scene on on Max Homeworld, it is so well done. Yeah. Like the, the map painting background, I don't know what planet they're they're supposed to be on. You know, given its proximity to Saturn, I'm gonna say Jupiter, but Oh, was that well, okay, that's a good point. I never thought about that. I guess we should assume that this is in our solar system because I just that never occurred to me as what planet are they on? It's just it's a foreign planet to me. But um, yeah, you're right. I, it probably should be something like that. But then again, Jupiter is supposed to be like this this gas plant. So maybe it's on Uranus, but... Oh, I can go and check. I mean, the liver spots lined up, but I'll check my <laughs> Uranus again. Yeah, considering how fast NASA got there and back has to be in the solar system. But it, but it is really well shot. It's well designed. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's the 80s. They're going to be shooting in a desert but the color grading too, like they did a really good job of setting the tone right up until, of course, they, they CGI them into the vacuum cleaner. And what's great about it being on a different planet is that if they have a different atmosphere, you can actually get away with a lot more color grading than that. Because you can just argue on this planet, everything looks red or everything looks green or everything looks purple because of the atmosphere and just the, you know, light spectrum of uh, light coming in through the atmosphere. So, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. The the shots on the planet were great. Um, it really feels like a very desolate planet. Like there's this, uh, I forget what it was, but there's this game that I played way back on the PlayStation 2 where essentially the main story is that like one of the characters was the last human alive and he gets sent back in time. And like, you get a glimpse of him in his original timeline, but he's literally the last human alive. And it's just a desert wasteland because all humanity's died out. And it's kind of like that. Like, I wonder, is Mac and his family the last of their kind? Did they drink their planet dry? And that's why they seem to be struggling on their own planet. There is so much more about the Mac and me world. I now want to know. Right. Like, I, you know, and I mean, what, what is their hope for the future? Cause okay, here's the thing. Mac's clearly intelligent. And his family is clearly intelligent and they clearly have a language of their own. And I mean, we have to know that they are intelligent, can understand language because they passed the the citizenship test. You know, you have to pass at least an oral and written test to be a citizen of the United States, unless it's an honorary thing. And they also drive a car. They get a driver's license at the end of the movie. So like, I would love to know their story about like, man, we thought this is it. We're just going to, you know, wander until we can't wander anymore like that's a bleak movie it starts with and when they get sucked into that nasa vacuum cleaner that is the best thing that ever could have happened to them and the special effects for that of how they just essentially turn into like a flat image and then stretch it out so it looks like they're going to the tube i love it i love those effects and once they're once they're on earth and whatnot um like just a lot of the the camera work you know, there's there's the, sh- mm-hmm. the there's the nice low down shots when the, the the remote control cars are being you know driven around by themselves. Um, so even the scene you know when they're at NASA and the aliens kind of bust out of the uh, the, the lander, there's a lot 
a lot of good cinematography in this mm-hmm. for an 80s movie. Well, it's not surprising because the director of photography is Nick McClain, um, who was direct, was DOP on Goonies and Short Circuit 2. Ah, okay. No, I so, mean, there, you can kind of see that there then, yeah. I think what really makes the cinematography stand out is that, yeah, a lot of the scenes are shot from a lower perspective, from Eric and Max height. You know, if you think about E.T., a lot of the beginning scenes where we're getting to know E.T. are from the lower heights. But then once we know them, the camera resumes back up to at least the older brother's height, if not like an adult's height. And now we're just ourselves, the audience, watching into this room. But for Mac and me, the camera stays low a lot. And I think that is kind of part of its character. Yeah, that this is Eric and Mac's story. It's not the older brother's story. It's not the mom's story. They are the ones telling it, so it's going to be from their perspective. It, it was definitely handled with, you know, you know. I, I know '80s camera work has a look. You know, if you watch, you know, again, mm-hmm. you know, Short Circuit was mentioned. It was at least Short Circuit too. But like all those family-friendly '80s movies, they were filmed a certain way that that no, you know, no one felt really in danger because of the way the camera work was. No one felt like, you know, you know too much blinking lights or something like that because of the way the camera was and this fits right in there with that comfortable family 80s viewing right there's no there's not any fast camera movements uh, from side to side or anything if anything whenever one of the scenes i always do like is whenever the quote alien or creatures trying to hide from the person and what's interesting is that this movie starts off the very first scene we get a clear unobstructed look at mac and his family we get a good solid like 90 seconds of just here's what they look like and then when Matt gets into the car and is hiding from Eric, they do a lot to obscure him, but also it's more obscuring him from Eric and the family, not from the audience, mm-hmm. which I thought was an interesting choice. Because in any other movie, Matt would have been obscured from the audience as well. He would have been hiding behind a thing and we would have only just seen the top of his head or just the tip of his fingers. But here we do see Mac hiding behind the door because, like I said, it's partially his story as well. Mm. And a lot of, you know, because they, they would go back and forth to these scenes of like the rest of the family, the rest of the alien family in the desert, you know, looking for for Mac or at least looking for someplace to go. And there was a lot of good use of silhouette work. You know, yes, they're, they're shooting out, They're shooting out in the desert. You've got the sun. Work with it and make it work for you. And, you know, for an 80s movie, you know, for an 80s family movie, it was visually pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm willing to bet that you could even put that as a side-by-side comparison of, gosh, I don't know, like maybe like trying to think of what other good desert movies have that like Lawrence of Arabia or something where like, they're just like marching along the Hills, riding on their animals. Just, we know we're in this for the long haul, you know? Yeah. It's, it's a vision. There are some visually striking moments in this film that I think if you could separate them from the rest of the film, you could probably even try to convince somebody that this is from an actual blockbuster that did like significant uh, gains in the box office. Now, let's talk about how this movie sounds. Okay. So the score. I mean, I'm I'm not going to touch the very 80s soundtrack on this, you know, complete with Ashford and Simpson song on there. I wish you would. I love the <laughs> I love the sound of the 80s. Listen. When it comes to, you gave me the list ahead of time. And I know that when it comes to music, that's my weakest category. But I love 80s music. I just love the way it sounds. I, I may not be able to tell you why, but I know what I like. And what I like is this. <laughs> I mean, of course, whenever you look at the the entire put together, like choices of the songs, you know, a lot of the songs here in Mac and Me, hold on, I have it right here in front of me. Where's that list? A lot of the songs are all about being apart and coming together. You know, like the main uh, theme is called You're Not a Stranger Anymore. Then you have Take Me, I'll Follow You, you know, uh, Send Out a Signal. So it's all like about reaching out and finding that person to connect with, to be with. So I always do enjoy whenever movie soundtracks try to have a unified theme like that. And it's not just we got the license to a Beatles song, to a Jimi Hendrix song, and to uh, an Aerosmith song. So let's just slap those in there and see what happens because and they're popular songs and people will recognize them. And nothing was written by Frank Stallone, so we're, we're safe there. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the score of the film, right? Because it is, you know, it's an 80s 
family action romp type film. And they got Alan Silvestri, you know, pre Avengers, Alan Silvestri to do the score. Now, now, I mean, if all of a sudden you hear the name Alan Silvestri and you have the Avengers theme playing in your head. Yeah. He's that good uh, yeah. of a composer. And again, it was one of those mo- movies where it, it was, it was played perfectly. You know, the, you know, there was that little theme that, that would carry through because that, 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 that's, that's a signature, right? You know, the main characters, especially, you know, if it's you know, an alien kind of thing, they'll have a theme, mm-hmm. have a theme. And the, then there's variations on the theme, depending on the scene. And Sylvester does that to a T here. Yeah, because I think the thing about it is that it's hard. We have five senses. Well, that's not actually, but we say that we have five senses as humans, you know, and cinema is primarily about sound and sight. We don't have the ability to get too much registry from smell or taste or touch. You know, like they haven't quite cracked any of those. I know there's been experiments in like the 60s for smell vision. You know, Disneyland, of course, is known for doing essentially smell vision, some of the things like the old Muppet Theater. But really, you you have to focus all your efforts upon sight and sound. And so really having that unique kind of sound trigger or like quick theme, even if it's just like a five second like you know, for like a character when they come on, it just gets people in the mood like, oh, here we go. Here comes this character. You know, that's why something like Jaws with just the one note speeding up the tempo mm-hmm. is iconic for that monster because that's that's him. He is a one note creature. He eats everything. You know, there's not any menace, well, not any menace about him uh, inherently until like you get to the revenge where he is apparently has a blood feud against this family. <laughs> but sound is so important to establish for the audience as kind of like a shorthand, like if it's a light bouncy tune, it's a light bouncy character. If it's a heavy dark tune, it's a heavy dark character. You can tell a lot without words or without even showing anything about a character, even before they come on screen with what the sound is dictating to you. I think one of the composers that does that really, really well uh, is Murray Gold. And Murray Gold, I mean, Murray Gold, was the one tasked with uh, scoring the Doctor Who BBC series up until um, Chris Chibnall became the showrunner and Jodie Whittaker became the Doctor. He had that knack of creating themes for the characters. There was Clara's theme, you know, Amy had her theme. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, I hate to draw a wrestling analogy to Doctor Who, you know, but character comes on and their theme song comes on, which is kind of right. nice. Here and, comes the Undertaker. You know. Oh my God, we go, we can go so long about wrestling theme songs that don't even get me started on that. But <laughs> but it's one of those things where it creates you know you know almost almost like a, a welcome to the scene kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Now this is the first time I ever actually watched this movie, so I was really excited. I'm like, wait, this is the first time you ever watched this? This movie? was the absolute first time I've ever seen this movie. So, so when you mentioned, welcome to like, the rest of your life, my friend. Oh, I tell you. And when I listened to it, I actually listened to it with headphones on. Mm. You know, sitting on my computer, listening with headphones on. The sound effects work. You know, yeah, they for an '80s film, they played a lot with left-right panning as far as your your sound design went. And that just adds so much more to it. I mean, like, I, I I love going to the theaters. I love when, you know, you hear, like, a little scratch over on the left side or a little scratch over on the right kind of thing, and you know there's something over on there, which is great in a the theater. You don't normally get that, you know, on home video, especially, you know, on old VHS tapes. So watching it at home with the headphones on, you really got to hear, you know, there was a lot of smart sound design choices in post-production. Right. Yeah. Um, and if you want to get a really good example of that, uh, for those listening at home and, you know, wanted just a quick thing of it, go watch the scene where Mac and his family are emerging from the NASA pod and they're, all the stuff is crashing in that NASA room. That's a really good time for where you can get a lot of the kind of the left-right differences there that you're talking about. And it's, it's what you were saying, you know, you know, we do have five senses, you know, for the most part. Bruce Willis has six, but we have five. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but... Yeah, if you can close your eyes and, and appreciate the scene and, you know, it helps visualize it. It helps it helps realize the scene, you know, especially when you're dealing with liver spotted aliens that are being, you know, vacuum sucked into a NASA lander. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I mean, those those are my notes. What else did you see 
that that really sparks you know this to be a good movie to you i think and i i know that you'll agree with me when referencing the star wars prequels i love the fact that they use so many practical puppets and that they weren't trying to do as much cg work as they could avoid to do they're like let's try to make it grounded let's make it real you know so there's probably at least 15 different versions of Mac throughout this film because of all the different ways that he bends and stretches his body. You know, so I really do enjoy that. Um, and the, the one thing I do wish they had a bit more of was more of the family because I do enjoy the, dy- the ideas of what you could do with the whole family of aliens. You know, once they finally do kind of show back up in the film and are in that what is it like? A, I think it's like a full on grocery store. I was going to say convenience store, but like a grocery store. You know, I think there's a lot of fun to be had there about what would happen in a typical suburban area if just here's a family of aliens. They're not with a spaceship. Because that's the thing. In most movies, the idea is, oh, a spaceship lands and you feel like you're outgunned immediately technologically wise. But these guys are naked. They are literally as unarmed as you can possibly be, you know, and un. Pre, uh, preposing or prepossessing and yet people are still freaking out about it they're like oh my god you know so it kind of brings up the whole i guess philosophical and theological ramifications these people have in their psyches about what does this mean is there a god anymore because there's an alien next to the cheerios <laughs> i i do have to admit that the animatronics on mac you know because because it's so small they you know they had to do a lot of animatronics there mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those moments where you sit there and they actually made the character like not re- necessarily relatable, but enjoyable. He's cute. Right? He He's is cute. It. You know what it is? It's his chubby cheeks. I think that's what it is. I think the chubby cheeks are him because the other parents, they're more sunken in their faces. But Max got the kind of like chubby cheeks. And I think the reason why they also had to do that is because there's so many times where he has to whistle mm-hmm. and, you know, blowing out your cheeks to get the air in your mouth to then make the whistle happen, I think is they wanted to show that, okay, he's whistling. Cause if you just show essentially like a, a blow up doll, which is its open mouth, just staring up slightly that, how do I know that thing's whistling? You know, you need, you need to have some kind of more visual theme other than that. And maybe him holding his hands up, but yeah, I, he, yeah, he's not, he's not beautiful looking. Cause yeah, it's still a liver spotted baby, which, <laughs> you know, fixes diet, but I, I, I think he's cute and that's yeah. And like I said, there's so many different versions of Mac, and I think that they did a lot of love and care into making this a likable creature, for lack of a better word. I do have to wonder. Um, so I'm going to make another Star Wars reference here, because apparently that's what all I do is make Star Wars references. I already made one, so go ahead. Okay, so Ahmed Best, the the guy who was, yep. was Jar, Jar, Jar Jar Binks, had a very, you know... You know, loose kind of very flimsy limb walk about him when he was mm-hmm. Jar Jar. And when you saw the dad walking around in the desert, it was kind of the same thing. So I wonder if Ahmed Best has seen Mac and me and maybe took a little bit of that, you know, like that loose limb walk from that to incorporate into Jar Jar Binks. I love that idea. I think that's fantastic. I, I, I hope that that's true. I really do because as much as we can connect Mac and me to another great franchise like Star Wars would make me happy beyond all reason. Um, my brain likes to make connections in the actual world of the movie. So for me, the reason why for that funny walk, different gravity. He's used to a different uh, field of gravity from his home planet of let's say Uranus than Earth. And also, um, what's their diet like? Because Mac can drink Coke and he's fine. He doesn't seem to get super hyper from it. Yeah, it kind of revitalizes him. And that that's their that's their first aid to the aliens in the cave. Drink a Coke. And I know that Coke is behind this film and they're like, we want a product in here. But it, it's it's so fun to me to be like, okay, so if Coke is good for them, if Coke is their water, first of all, where's their planet made out of Coke? And second <laughs> of all, like, what is their physiology like on the inside? I, I wonder now, because as you mentioned, you know, like, you know, they, for opening scene, they're sticking straws into the, into the planet. They're and sucking the planet the, dry. So is Uranus made out of Coke and did they drink all the Coke and basically eliminated the rest of life on Uranus? Yeah, I think so. I think they suck my Uranus dry and cut <laughs> all the Coke out of it. <laughs> oh, 
I need that on a shirt now. Um. Yeah, they suck Uranus dry. <laughs> and that um, they're like, oh, man, Earth's got Coke. But I also look forward to the idea and the promise of a sequel at the end of this film where they said, we'll be back with a bubblegum special effect, which was a fun choice. Um, I, I would love it if they're like, they move into the neighborhood and it's essentially like, oh, it's it's those again. It's it's the annoying neighbors who have the weird habits. You know, essentially, they could have built a franchise in the same vein as the Adams family, where they really just keep to themselves, but they have such weird habits and traditions. It just irks the rest of the you know clean cut white suburban neighborhood. What was it with eighties films? Calling their shot and saying there's going to be a sequel and then not happening. It happened in this one with mm-hmm. you know with the we'll be back bubble. Masters of the Universe, when Skeletor kind of pops back out of the out of the that's the, right, the, they the call soup. that too, yeah, yep. And the Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. That's right, they do, yeah, right. That the whole little thing, you know, you know, Buckaroo, Buckaroo Bonsai way back in the eighth dimension, or whatever it was, and it's like you called your shot and you missed your shot. I think what it is is that they're hoping that they're kind of holding the studio hostage with the audience. Say like, Hey, listen, we promised the audience we're going to do this. You're going to make us the liar. Don't make me look like a jerk here. Come on, let's do another one. Say, so, so this is what we need. We need you know, a sequel where Eric and Debbie are still friends. Okay. Mm-hmm. The older brother and, and, and the older sister, they actually got married. Okay. Are we talking a sequel now? Oh yeah. Or- it's got to be a sequel or- now. Okay, I just wanted to say, are you talking sequel now? Are you talking like a potential sequel in like 97? Okay, now, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, and we're going to call it Mac and Me and Me. One of them's got to have a kid and... Oh, I thought you were going to put me in that movie because my last name is Me. And I'm like, I'm down to star <laughs> in this movie. Mac and Me and Me. Hell yeah. Okay, now that needs to, that, that needs to be written. Mac and okay. Me and well, Me. Hey, hey, how about this? I'm Eric's kid, you know. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll be down for that. Yeah. Um, oh, oh. Big Mac, Little Mac. Got to put, because that's the reason why. Let's face it. As much as Mac is for mysterious alien creature, it's because it's McDonald's. And they want it to be, oh, it's the Little Mac. And then you can come get a Big Mac after you watch Little Mac. I'm, I'm. And if Mac got a job at McDonald's, because now they're, now they're American citizens, they can right. work. I'm yeah, that's it. right. They can get they can get that same uh, underpaid minimum wage uh, lifestyle that all the other people are now striking against and saying, "Nope, that's too low. We can't live on that anymore." Thank you. <laughs> so, okay. So, before we get to our MVP of the film, um, right. we mentioned at the very beginning of the show that it's it at one point had a zero percent tomato meter rating, and it's now up to four percent. Mm-hmm. Is this movie? unfairly maligned because it's a McDonald's Coke baby ET ripoff. I think so. I think if you took out the McDonald's scene, you know, I think that alone is the egregious sin that most people have against it of like, it's so blatantly obvious. Like, okay. And even ET Elliot full on does, okay, we're doing Reese's pieces and he holds it up and he like, you know, lays them out for ET. But like, people don't criticize that as hard because we understand that product placement is a thing, you know? And of course when movies turn to the camera and grin about it, like how they do in Zoolander with the product placement, that's a different story. But here, I think the most egregious part is that they fully go to a McDonald's restaurant. Ronald McDonald is doing magic. They have a dance party, which never would happen in McDonald's. Everyone's having a good time. Even the employees behind the counter are dancing along, not working, just dancing and having a great time at it. I think that that's where people are like, okay, no, this is no, this is too far. Like you're, you're not only doing product placement, but you're doing like product, like fabrication. You're promising above what you could possibly ever deliver. There will never be this. Even if, even if a sad, sad kid did say, I want my birthday party at McDonald's. Like, and I want to have like all the presents there and everything. Like, it's still not going to be to this level of what they're presenting here. It's still going to be some kids crying in the corner, some guys complaining about what do you mean you stop serving breakfast at 10? You know, so it's, I, I think that's what the main 
gripe that most people had for this film is. I mean, even the whole Coke is what revives people. So, hey, get a Coke if you need to pick me up like Mac. I, I don't think that's the problem. I think it's that, the McDonald's dance number and the whole scene of that. I, I will say, like as I mentioned earlier, this was the first time I had ever watched this movie beyond a clip of Paul that Paul Rudd had showed on Conan mm-hmm. O'Brien. And yeah, I, I didn't see how it could stay with the 0%. Was it you know, an earth shattering movie? No, no. And, you know, it's, you know, as far as eighties kid adventure type movies with like the Goonies and, you know, and, you know, as far as, you know, alien like creatures like short circuit, you know, does it hold up to those ones? Maybe not, but it's not a bad movie at all. It's not a 0%. Like I said, at the beginning of this thing, it is not something that it's interminable to get through. It is not something that as soon as you watch you like, no, and then you click it off. Yeah, it it it's it's a fun little romp. It's not an Oscar winner for sure, but it's fun. Okay, so it's come to the point where you know we each have an MVP of the film. So, Greg, I'm going to hand it over to you. Who is your MVP of Mac and Me? MVP for Mac and Me, which I love that rhyme, by the way. <laughs> and I'm going to keep it going. The MVP of Mac and Me is Little Debbie. Okay. Because she rolls with the punches every time it's thrown at her. She's totally cool with Mac. Even when she meets Eric, she's like, what? Oh, okay. And then when she goes with the back, with the vacuum strapped her back, full exorcist up the wall and is screaming, like a moment later, she's like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I'll admit, I kind of went back and forth on a couple things on my MVP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at McLean, the director of photography, because it is. It's beautifully shot. You know, for an 80s movie, it's beautifully shot. And I thought yeah. about Tina Casperi, who, uh, you know, played Courtney, Debbie's sister, um, because, again, we, as we mentioned, she she comes off as as probably the, the, the most realistic in, act, in reacting to the scene in front of her. But I'm going to put it in the hands of Jay Caligari, Eric. Okay, because, yeah. Because aside from, you know, his pot, you know, the movie being smart enough to, to cast someone who actually is in a wheelchair and mm-hmm. suffers from spina bifida in that role and then not make a big deal about it. And for him to, at, 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 it's kids actors, right? But I, I love the dynamic between Eric and Debbie. I love that dynamic. Um, so for me, it's Jake Caligari for carrying a film. You know, and, you know, yes, is, is it his only movie role? Yes, it is. Um, so hopefully he hears this and, and knows that he's he's considered an MVP of this film. I love it. And yes, you like you said, he did carry the film. But unlike most people, he carried it in his lap, like how his brother packed all the packages under his lap and says, OK, now take those inside. <laughs> and had to wear Chicago Cubs and Chicago Bears shirts all the way through. So <laughs> I would love it if Jade in real life was like, but I hated the Chicago Cubs. I'm a I'm a San Francisco Giants kind of guy. <laughs> I, I wonder how that is, right? Like like if you're a fan of a sports team and your character, you know, is like can you imagine being a Yankees fan? It's like, no, 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 your character likes the Red Sox. Do you do you turn that down? I say, how much am I getting paid? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for this. Where can we find you on social media and all your podcasts? Sure. Uh, you can find me for Movie Date Night at Movie Date Night on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Game Friday for the Friday's Game Night. We also have Game underscore Friday on TikTok and Instagram. And then, of course, um, Moral Combat is Moral Combat Pod. Greg, thank you so much. This has been It's Not That Bad. Now, if you have a movie that you want us to go through and break down not the negatives but the positives if you if you think there's a movie out there that's unfairly maligned if it's given a bum rap or you think it's so bad that we can't find anything out about it let us let me know on twitter uh, not that bad cast i'm jason thank you greg so much we will catch you next time on it's we'll not that bad we'll be back
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 